All right. Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? This could be fun today. At least uh, it's gonna be fun for us. So we'll be up here having fun. I hope you guys join in and have fun too. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Bob. I am the other lead pastor here. My wife Gabe does so well. Thank you. Thank you. Wait, was that for me or was that for Gabe? Okay. Usually all the woos are for Gabe, but. Anyway, glad that you guys are here. We have uh, what we think is going to be a fun weekend uh, for you. Um, as if you've been going here for a while, you, you know that um, we've come out of a series of biblical prophecy or messianic prophecy about Jesus, about a coming Messiah, a coming Savior uh, that culminates on Christmas morning. And so that was fun, um, but leading up to that, to that series, uh, we were in one on Acts. Prior to that, Sermon on the Mount, and those were all very um, scripture heavy uh, because that's the way that I like to teach. I, I teach from the Bible, teach the Word. I want to know what the Word of God says first and foremost, and then what we say about that is, is much more secondary. Um, but I want to focus on the Bible, and so I'm giving our people back in the tech booth a rest today. So there won't be any scriptures up on the, up on the board. Um, it'll just have our names in case you forget who we are back there. Uh, but we're going to talk about what we decided to do. We're trying to talk about what we're going to do on a weekend like this. And we didn't want it to be um, just a frivolous fluff message, you know, that some kinds, some churches will do that on this weekend uh, because it's often a low attended weekend. So they'll do that. But what we wanted to do was something even more fun is we wanted to go into um, commonly asked questions, commonly asked Christian questions specifically, not about the average rainfall in the Amazon basin or anything like that. <laughs> Christian questions, to be honest. And so we put that out to, to the congregation. We put that out like, hey, what are, what are some common questions that you would have or maybe common questions that you hear? And so a combination of what you guys input and then what we found on a couple websites specifically dedicated to commonly asked questions, we came up with a list. We actually came up with a list of 20 commonly asked questions, and then we started paring those down to some that we just felt like we, we wanted to share with you guys. And so what we've done is we've come up with four commonly asked questions. I'm going to tackle two, and Gabe's going to tackle two. Uh, and we're going to talk about those. Now, this isn't an in-depth theological study on any of them. Now, they are obviously scripturally based because we want to point to what the word says about these things. Uh, but we hope it's going to be a little bit more fun. Each of us has got about seven minutes, seven, eight minutes on each topic. And so again, you can't go super in depth. I realize there'll be things left unanswered, but our hope is that this is going to spark you to, to go and check it out for yourself. I spend a lot of time trying to teach you guys how to find things in the word, to encourage you to look deeper than just what the pastor says, to go deeper into the word. And that's so important to both of us that we hope that after a message like this, what it's going to do is not answer every question you're ever going to have about these subjects, but it's going to inspire you to, I want to go check that out for myself. And then you'll go study the word for yourself. That's what we always want to do. So without further ado, let's get to our very first question, which Pastor Gabe gets to do. Okay. So I decided we were going to start with something warm and fuzzy. Will there be animals in heaven? And more specifically, our pets. And it's so, it's so funny to, to think about that, but 
one of the things that Bob and I have talked about, first of all, any of you guys who know our dog, Bodie, you know I'm a little too crazy for him. It's just, it's just the way it is. And, and it kind of sparked me to look at on Facebook and Instagram a lot of the posts that are out there. And, you know, no judgment, guys, but I think that people might like animals more than they like their kids much of the time. So I just, um, but anyway, all kidding aside, um, it is something that we wonder about because we, we bond with these animals. A lot of us do, not everybody. But So that's what we're going to start with. So going through uh, and doing some research and, and looking at scripture, there isn't much in the way of specific teaching about that. It doesn't talk about pets really that much of the Bible at all, but it does talk about creation. And God created animals just like he, he created man. They were before man, it kind of went, when I was looking at the creation story, it looks like it all built up to man, right? And man was built in the likeness of God, which animals were not. But I was thinking about it, and I was thinking it's kind of like God was building up to this. So I feel like because he created animals, just like he created man, and he declared his creations good, I think that's significant. Would God create something that was good only to destroy it because nothing catches God off guard, right? He's, he's creating this. Now, there are some differences, obviously, some big differences between animals and man. Man was um, made special in the likeness of God and has dominion over animals, correct? And animals don't have the same um, opportunity for salvation, correct? You know, they, they don't have the ability really to put their faith and their lives in Christ's hands. So that's a very significant difference. So as I was going through scripture, this is what I pulled out. And I, as I'm reading it in this context, I thought to myself, it's, it's sweet and I like how this makes me feel. And I feel like this is God giving us some insight into what heaven and the new earth is going to be like. So this is out of Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. Now, on a personal note, that sounds like awesome pets to me. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying. Yeah. All right. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And because God is not frivolous in the words that he has given us, and then the words that he gave them to write in the Bible and the scriptures, I believe he would not be using animals as an example if animals weren't part of that plan. And uh, for anybody who ever watches the Nature Channel, if you're like me and I'm like, oh, if anything gets eaten in this, I can't watch it or whatever. This is lovely to me. I love this, okay? Um, the, the last scripture I looked at in this is Isaiah 65, 17. Look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. So the bottom line for me on this is that God is just and God loves Nothing is a surprise to him, including our love and affection for our pets. And it's important for us always to remember not to elevate our pets above God, just like we're not to elevate family members above God. 
Sorry, Bob. So, uh, <laughs> so for me. But, but he knows... He knows how we feel about them, how important they are to him. And I don't believe that that is something that he would have put on earth for us to engage in if there wasn't something special about that. But I also believe when we go to heaven, we will see that God's choices are 100% right. And we're not going to have any problems with them. Yep. You know, so I, I choose not to worry about that because I absolutely believe that heaven is not going to lack anything that we need Anything that is good or necessary for our happiness. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. That's good. I love, how, I love how God throughout the entire word, both Old and New Testament, gives us little breadcrumbs to kind of follow his heart. You know, if you look closely enough, it answers all these questions. Like I've always thought um, in heaven, you know, the lion gets to go there, the wolf gets to go there. You know, the, the, the bee animals in heaven, I've always seen that. But then, like, what do they eat, you know? Because it's not very heavenly for the bunny in heaven who's hopping along and the lion or the, the wolf attack. That's not, uh, he's not loving it up there. But then he gives us little, little breadcrumbs again, like that scripture in Isaiah that says that the lion shall eat, bread, shall eat hay. And so just, just these little clues that may not seem significant at the time, but it just shows us how how there won't be pain and suffering and death in, in heaven. It's, I, I love the Father's heart for us and that he, he lays it all out for us, uh, for us to see, uh, for those who have a heart to search for it. So that's good. Thanks. All right. So my turn. I'm going to talk about something lighthearted and fun, like giving and tithing in church. So whether you're new here uh, or you've been coming for a while, we, um, we, we came out of Jubilee Fellowship Church, and Pastor John Leach's um, philosophy was, uh, he felt that the Lord led him to, and it, and it felt good in the spirit to us, was to not pass an offering plate or anything like that, but simply to just make a way for people to give as they felt led by the Lord. And that's what he taught, and that's what we have taught. And again, that felt very good in the spirit to us. Uh, but we are coming up on our one-year anniversary as a church, uh, as Discover Community Church. And in that time, what we've done is every single weekend, we lift our tithe and offering up to the Lord and we pray for it. Uh, but then we leave it there. We haven't taught one time on giving or anything. And, and our congregation has been so incredibly faithful in that, that, that God has truly blessed that way of doing it. But there are still questions that people have. There's still, believe it or not, a significant portion of our church that doesn't participate in tithing or giving. And so I feel like it's a, it's a question that a lot of people have, maybe don't understand kind of how that works. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. Now, again, this is, um, this is a big subject. These are all subjects that could take an entire day, if not an entire series. So keep in mind that there's much left to be unanswered. But um, here's what the Bible says about giving and tithing. First of all, tithing and giving, are they even the same thing? Do, do we believe that they're the same thing? Are they different things? Well, tithing, for the most part, I would say, is an Old Testament concept. Okay, it's, it's, it is. It's an Old Testament concept. It was brought up all the way back in, in Mosaic Law. You know, the first, the first few books of the, of the Old Testament are full of it. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, talking about over and over again about tithing. 
brings up the concept of tithing. What tithing is, literally, biblically, is the word tithe just means 10 or 10%. And you are asked by God to bring 10% of your income, broad-term income, could have been crops, could have been livestock, could have been actual monetary uh, income. You were tasked by God to bring 10% of that into the, into the temple, to support the temple. That was, that was the idea. They even made a way in Deuteronomy, it talks about a way where if you live far enough away from the temple to where bringing your crops or your livestock is not practical to the temple, however far away that distance would be, it made a way where it, where it literally said, um, if it's too far away, then you can sell your livestock or your crops and then bring the money into the temple. Okay, the reason that that was done the reason the concept of tithe was set up there is that those people really weren't used to having to support something else. They were very much in, in their own individual villages, their own individual towns. They would support that. But as, as the church began to grow, now we're not talking about the Christian church at this point. We're just talking about the church of God. And as it continued to grow, it needed support. The priests needed support to be able to upkeep the temple in order to to supply all the, all the things that the temple needed so that people could go and worship their God. But it required money, okay? It required, didn't require an uh, electric bill, uh, which is another bonus that we get in this day and age, but it required all the other things. It required a way to support the Levite priests. It required a way um, to, to give out alms and giving to the poor. It required a way simply to buy the supplies and the trappings that you needed to upkeep the temple. And so God laid out these things saying, this, we need to supply the temple. We need to provide for the temple, and I'm going to provide for them through our people. And I'm going to make a law that says, here is how you do it. Because back then, freedom amounted to whatever you felt like you were supposed to do, which is why we have the law. And I'll talk about that more a little bit later. But it is an Old Testament concept but there's many, many more scriptures than just Leviticus and Deuteronomy that talk about tithing and giving. I'm talking about specifically Old Testament here. In fact, if you, we, talk, we think of tithe as 10%, right? Because that's what the word means. However, if you really go back and study the word, there were actually separate tithes. There was a tithe that was to be given to the Levite priests specifically. There was a tithe that was, was to be given to support the temple. And again, another one for alms, as I have said, alms to the poor. If you added those up, some scholars have done the calculations, and it comes to 23 to 25% of your income that you were commanded biblically to give to the temple and to the priest to, to upkeep that. So, so from that point of view, 10% sounds like a good deal, right? If you just do 10% overall. But <clears throat> that's all law. That's all law. And that's all written in the Old Testament for those people who were under the law at that point. But now Jesus came to abolish the law, did he not? Yeah. To fulfill it. To fulfill it. So not necessarily to abolish it, but to explain to us in real human terms, this is what this law means to you. And here's how I want you to interpret this. But what he did come to, to abolish is that sacrificial system. 
okay, that sacrificial system of giving, and, and transition that more into what does the Lord put on your heart? What's on your heart to give? He teaches over and over again, Jesus does, that what the law says, yes, is important, but what's more important than that is what are you going to do with it? What's your heart respond to what the law says? That's what's important. So Jesus came to abolish that stuff. In fact, the word tithe is not, is, the word tithe is not in the, in the New Testament at all. It's not in the New Testament at all. But Jesus did talk a lot about money. As you know, Jesus taught a lot in parables, right? And the reason he taught in parables is because they're very memorable, okay? You can go down and you can list, how many of people can list the Ten Commandments like right off the top of their head? It's hard. You probably can because they've been around for thousands of years, literally. <laughs> but when Jesus taught in parables, he taught it to illustrate biblical concepts, Okay, and so he taught a lot in parables. In fact, depending on what you technically call a parable or not, there's somewhere around 39, 40 parables that Jesus taught in the New Testament. Did you know that half of them are about money? In one way or another, half of the, ta- half of the parables that Jesus taught are about giving or about money or about finances. The other parts being kingdom and love one another and that sort of thing, uh, but He taught extensively about money. And why did Jesus teach in parables at all to begin with? One, makes them more memorable, right? But when Jesus himself was asked, why do you teach in parables? Remember this? The the apostles are actually asking him, why do you teach in these stories so much? Because some of them don't make sense unless you think about them. But he says, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 13. When the disciples come and ask him, Why do you speak in parables? Jesus says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Here's what that means to you and I, is that the concept of kingdom giving is not a worldly concept. It's not something that you can quantify by looking at a spreadsheet a profit loss statement, or, or a, an ROI impact statement. It's a kingdom principle. And only if your eyes have been opened to that kingdom principle will you understand the importance of giving back to, to your church, to the body of Christ where you are. It is a supernatural principle that once you see it in motion, once you see it impact and play out in your life, you will never forget that. But until you see that, it's something that's impossible to quantify. But what's more important about all that is what Jesus himself said specifically about giving. Remember when Jesus was teaching, he taught about three specific spiritual disciplines. He said, when you give, when you pray, and what's the other one? When you fast. So he said there are, three, there are three things, and he taught many things, but every time he talked about praying, about giving, or about fasting, it was not if you, or here's what would be a good idea for you to do. He said when you, okay? Meaning it was, it was an assumption that if you were a Christian, if you were a follower of Jesus, you were going to do these things. It was a spiritual discipline, and from that then flowed everything else that came out of it. But here's what Jesus said. Again, he expects us to give. Matthew 6 is full of all kinds of different things, but he wants us to give. He wants us to give for the right reasons. 
Okay, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. One reason why we don't pass an offering plate. I feel very much that the old offering plate passing is, is number one, it's condemning for a lot of people. In our modern day and age, a lot of people give online. So just because you don't put anything in the plate or the box doesn't mean that you don't give to the church. And, he, and yet, if you pass a plate, you're going to feel compelled to put something in there. Right? I've seen churches where there's gum wrappers, where there's receipts. There's a, because you have to be seen putting something in there, otherwise you're going to feel judged. Right? So we don't do that. It's one of the reasons we don't. Jesus reminds us that our giving is ultimately it's not to this building. Okay? It's to God. Our, our giving is meant to go to God. It's given, by him, it's given to him, and it is seen by him, and it is rewarded by him. That's where it goes, and that's where your reward is. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Remember that. Okay? The Apostle Paul actually says this too. In 2 Corinthians, he says, Now this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Remember when I taught through Acts, we were talking about Paul's missionary journeys and the various missionary journeys that people did. One of the things that I downplayed and didn't talk about at that point was one of the reasons that he did this. Every place that he went, whether it was Corinth or Ephesus or all these different stops, one of the main functions that he did there was to collect a tithe from those areas to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. Okay, That church in Jerusalem, which was fledgling, even though it was blowing up at the time, multiple thousands of people going to it, but they had a mission given to them by Jesus Christ himself to accomplish, and that was to go and make disciples, okay? And that was their mission, and so he was collecting this tithe from all over the known world at that time to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. In fact, if you remember, what happened at one point was the disciples, Scripture says the disciples actually sold everything that they have. I'm not talking about the 12 apostles, right? I'm talking about all the thousands of disciples in the church of Jerusalem at the time, sold the property, sold their houses, everything, brought it in and literally laid it at the feet of the apostles so that they could accomplish the mission that God has given to them. So I want to tell you, that was their mission. This church, Discover Community Church, we have our own mission that was given to us by God. Okay, go and make disciples, absolutely. But we are to serve our community through outreach. That is our focus as a church, to being community outreach oriented. And I want to ask you, are you on board with that mission? If you're on board with that mission and you call Discover Community Church your home, I want to ask you, are you contributing to that mission? It's like every church, we have fixed expenses. We have to keep the lights on. We have to pay a lease. We have to pay the water bill. We have those sorts of expenses. And we're meeting those, and, and then some. But every dollar above and beyond that that's given is a dollar that we can put towards outreach. And so if you're not giving, if you're not contributing in a, in a financial way to this vision and mission, I want to just encourage you to pray about it, to pray about that. Giving is, is a gift from God. The ability to participate in, what's God, in what God is doing is a gift from God. And I want to remind you this, that both the desire to be generous and the means to do so are gifts from God. And the question is, what do we do with that gift? Thanks. I, went, I only went a little over. Okay, I went a lot over.
All right, to lighten this up, I'm going to talk about tattoos, alcohol, and gambling, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, There'll be a bus out front immediately after the... <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, that's going to be a weird follow-up right after that. So, uh, okay, so we kind of lumped those separate questions together because um, really all three of these, much of it lies in the motivation behind them. Okay, so motivation is is really key, and and I was as I was kind of reading on these and studying on these three subjects, um, I thought to myself, do we really ever take the time to think about our motivation behind if we get a tattoo, if we take a drink, if we go and gamble? Now I'm going to do full disclosure before anybody feels like they're going to be condemned or something weird's going to happen to them. Both Bob and I have tattoos. Both and I, Bob and I drink alcohol, and we both gambled. So Not today. Just, Not yeah. on a Sunday. All right? Ever. So, so I just need to throw that out there before somebody gets like, oh, where is this going? Okay. So, um, but as, I, as I'm looking at this, I thought there were a lot, of, a lot of great things that the Bible talks about. Now, tattoos, really the most famous scripture, really the only scripture I can really find about tattoos is in Leviticus that's telling you don't do it. It's like, don't cut yourself, don't mark yourself. But I think it's really important, again, that's one of the things when we teach, making sure everybody understands the context of the scriptures that we're reading. And the context of this, at that time, there was a lot of ritualistic pagan things going on where people were cutting themselves to mourn the dead. They were marking themselves to, to glorify pagan gods. There were a lot of things going on there. So the law was put into place to help rein that stuff in. Okay, now today you might see scriptures about, um, mostly I see about outward versus inward adornment, okay? And the scripture I pulled out was in Peter, 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. And I think that's a great a great scripture, but that's, that's addressing makeup, jewelry. It could be any of those things. So I think the heart of, of where you are with that outward versus inward adornment is what's important because you can tattoo anything on yourself and it doesn't really do justice to the person that you are inside. You know, are you trying to do something like that to, to override what you feel about yourself. And so for some people, it is a beautiful outward expression of something that is truly inside of them. And when I, when I taught this last night, it was, it was kind of funny because somebody had just showed me their tattoo, their new tattoo in the lobby, and they didn't know what we were teaching on. And I'm like, okay, so I would need to make sure this is very clear that um, if it was a tattoo out of rebellion, if it's a tattoo that is where you're trying to say something about yourself that you're not, then you need to think about it. As in any of these three categories, I think prayerful consideration is important. I have seen many beautiful tattoos. Like I said, Bob and I, we each have tattoos. There is nothing that I think that is inherently a problem with a tattoo unless it is, it is something, again, that you're trying to cover up. I read some stats, and one of the stats, it said uh, of the 21-plus 
50% of Americans that have tattoos, it said that 31% of those people thought that the tattoo made them sexy, and 29% felt that it made them, showed them as rebellious. So I thought that's interesting that somebody might put a tattoo on themselves to show themselves as rebellious when really they are not rebellious. And, and that's something that I think you should think about. Anything that you're doing permanent to your, to your body is something that you should think about. You should think about really what's your motivation. You prayerfully consider it. And if God gives you the okay, I think it's okay. But as any, again, in all three of these, these are not salvation issues. So luckily, even if we get it wrong, it doesn't mean that you don't get to go to heaven, right? Even if, You need to, though, sincerely pray about it and hear what God says to you about it. Um, when we talked about the alcohol part of this, I'm reading in the Bible, Jesus made wine, Jesus drank wine, but Jesus never got drunk. And the, and the Bible, the scriptures talk about wine in, in several instances, but um, it never, again, it never really says that you can or can't as a regular, as a regular person. I know that there were some things where, where it told people to abstain, but there are scriptures where Paul talks to Timothy about the medicinal properties of wine. Uh, Jesus talks about, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, which means he had wine before. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting when I was reading some theologians had out there that the, that the wine that Jesus made at the wedding in John uh, was non-alcoholic. And I thought, I'm like reading through the Bible, and I'm like, hey, I don't see anything that actually says that. Uh, but who knows? And again, that's, the Bible doesn't specifically just spell that out for you. So again, you have to take sincere uh, prayerful consideration if that's a question for you. There are some things that are a stumbling block for one person that are not for another. And if you are concerned about it, then maybe that means that God is prompting you or convicting you in one way or another. Maybe it is something that's done too often and there's consequences, obviously, if there's excesses. The Bible teaches excessively about excesses in alcohol, about not getting drunk, okay? Um, Maybe you have somebody in your family or whatever that has a problem like that, and you're, you're feeling convicted about not drinking because you don't want to be a stumbling block to that person. So those are all things to consider. Again, the Bible gives us freedom. The scriptures, God has given us freedom, but he's also given us a responsibility to look and seek him on those things. And then I save gambling for last because I feel... It's, it's similar in many ways, but there are some different differences in this. Again, what's your motivation behind it? Like there's a difference between, you know, uh, casting lots. When they cast lots in the Bible, they are asking for divine guidance and answers to certain questions. That's why they're casting lots. That's very different than gambling at a casino or, or playing the lottery, you know. And, and I'll be honest, a lot of times we don't play the lottery because we forget all the time until you see where somebody's won and you're like, oh, why didn't I play? Um, but one of the things I thought was, was significant, and this is how it came down to my bottom line on, on the gambling part, is gambling really, is wasting money on gambling any different than wasting money on anything else? 
You know, I have just a problem with buying pins. I don't even know what it is. I, I, <laughs> I have way too many pins, okay. Uh, and so I can look at that and say, gosh, you know, did I waste money buying yet another pen? Do I need another pen in my life? It's ridiculous. And, and how does that affect me? Do I have that money to spare? That's a big question. So the cumulative effect is a big thing in gambling. You know, there's, you know, I might spend $10 on pens, and if you spend $10 on gambling, you spend $10 on gambling. But what if, what if you're somebody who does not have that $10 to lose. You know, what could I have done with that $10 on my pins or gambling that I could have given to somebody? I mean, I think that's something we have to think about. And then the other thing that I, that came up in this study that I had really never considered so much before was that in order for me to win, somebody else needs to lose. And when I started thinking about it in that way, it was really different. I mean, in, in, with the lottery or casinos, they're not just coming up with that money out of nowhere. It's from, from people who have lost that those winnings come. And oftentimes, the people that can afford to lose money the least are the ones that are very tempted to do that. So again, like anything else, seeking God, is this, is this okay for me, God? Is this something that I'm going to have a problem with? Is there going to be a consequence that I cannot afford to bear? And I think in these questions or any questions, that's always the first place to go. Because if he's convicting you, that should set off some flags in your head that you need to consider this a little bit further and a little more closely. That's good. That's good. And like, like so many things, gambling, tattoos, alcohol, even, even giving to the church are not salvation issues. Their, their, their life here on earth issues, their obedience issues, but they're not salvation issues. Okay, the word says once you, if, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved, right? It doesn't give a whole other list of things that you need to do, which leads me into the next question. Here's the question that I have for you. Can a Christian lose their salvation? It's a very commonly asked question, okay? Let me show of hands if you're brave enough. Who here believes that through some way or another, a Christian can lose their salvation? Okay, and then I'm assuming that the rest of you either haven't thought of it or you think that you can't lose your salvation. Well, I want to go through and see, see what the Word says about it, okay? Many times I've heard this taught, and, and the teaching goes like this. Well, let's not talk about those foolish controversies. Let's just focus on our salvation in Jesus. Okay, and I would recommend that we all do that. Keep pursuing Jesus. Keep pursuing that, that salvation. However, the reason these are commonly asked questions is because people ask these questions, and they can become stumbling blocks sometimes. They can become things that the enemy uses against us for fear. How many of us have at one point or another said something like, I worry about my fill-in-the-blank, my brother, my sister, my spouse, my friend who has backslidden, okay? Or even people have said that, I have backslidden. And they say that in a condemning way. And what backslidden means, means different things to a lot of people. But ultimately, they're, they're fearful 
that backsliding, distancing themselves from God in one way or another, whether it's God in the form of, of just coming to church and assembling together, or I don't pray anymore, or I've totally walked away from God, whatever their definition of backslidden is, people worry about that. People worry about that in no time more so than when we have to talk about a funeral. When I talk with families about a funeral, many times, unfortunately, there is someone in the family who's fearful that their loved one had backslidden to the point to where their salvation was not sure. And so that's what I want to talk about here. So um, I'm going to completely set aside the entire predestiny argument. Okay, that is a whole nother line. We could spend an entire series, at the very least, another day entirely on that predestiny argument. But I want to set that aside for now. Okay, we'll talk about that at some point, but not now. Um, but believers, the word says that when you, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born again. You are born again, your spirit is regenerated, you are cleansed. There's many scriptures that talk about this transformation that happens to a believer when they give their heart to Jesus Christ. But for a Christian to lose his salvation, he would essentially have to be unregenerated, unborn again, okay, uncleansed. All these things would happen. And I don't find any scripture that points to this happening. What I do find is a lot of scripture, such as John 3, 3, where Jesus is saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus laying out the concept of being literally born again, okay, when we give our hearts to him. And then Titus 3, 5 puts an even finer point on it where it says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, of regenera- washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Okay, you are washed, you are regenerated, you are born again. All these things happen in Christ the moment that you, that you receive salvation. And again, what does it take to be saved? What, is, what page is that list on? Is it a list of bullet points, things that you have to fulfill in order to you know, accept all, click at the bottom, and, and then you're saved? It's one thing right? It's one thing. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. That's what it takes to be saved. And so there's much more, um, much more to the controversy of losing it than there is to actually achieving salvation. Achieving salvation is something that comes in the heart. But I go all the way back to this, John 3.16. Who's heard of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me ask you a question. This is just a a, a logic question. Is it eternal if it can be taken away? Is a gift from God that's meant to be an eternal gift, is it really truly eternal if it can be just revoked? Or is it a pass? Here's a get into heaven pass, but be careful with it because you can lose it if you don't fulfill all of our all of our laws. I don't see anything that points that way. Salvation is a gift from God that once you accept it, it belongs to you. And more importantly, you belong to Jesus at that point. You belong to Jesus at that point. Side note, well, first of all, before I go to that side note, in Romans 11, 29, it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
That puts a pretty fine point on it. Salvation is a gift from God through his son, Jesus Christ, that once we accept, that gift is ours. And then in Romans, it says that gift is irrevocable. Can't be taken away. To me, you put two and two together, okay, and it can't be taken away. So, a couple questions that come out of that. First of all, what about possession? What about being possessed by a demon? The movies do a great job of, of talking about what that looks like and how possession is something that we have to be afraid of and, ooh, it can happen, and they really, they really play that up. But can possession really truly happen to a Christian? The answer is no, because once you give your heart to Jesus Christ, the Word says you belong to him. You literally belong to him, and you cannot belong to two masters. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he is your Lord and Savior. You cannot belong to anyone else. So no, a Christian cannot be possessed. Okay? If you're not a Christian, that's a whole different story. Okay? But movies would have you believe it's just as easy as playing with a Ouija board and all of a sudden you're possessed. Now, that's a teaching for another day. That's not a good thing to do either. Okay? You can be tormented. You can be demonized. There are different levels of demon attack that we can literally come under, but they don't involve possession. Okay? You at all times have authority over those demons. Okay? You belong to Jesus Christ. So remember that. Remember that. But Romans also goes on. The Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That pretty much is an all-encompassing list, but that also includes you. Our feeble attempts to get out of the grasp of Jesus Christ once we have given our hearts to him don't amount to much. Okay? We're not strong enough, smart enough, or fast enough to get out of his grasp once he has us. Okay? That's important to know. The same God that gave you that gift of eternal life is the one that promises it to you every single day. And he's the one who will keep you in his grasp. So... Where does all this talk then about potentially you can lose your salvation? Where does that come from? Okay, if you have a Catholic background or Catholic traditions say that there are what? Mortal sins, that you can commit mortal sins, okay? I'm going to set aside the Catholic tradition, okay? Because uh, the word of God that I have doesn't address that, okay? So we're not going to talk about that. But what we are going to talk about is a couple different scriptures, one where a lot of people get this, this idea from, and it's in Hebrews. Remember, the, the author of Hebrews is debated, okay? We don't know exactly for sure who the author of Hebrews is. I believe that it was Apollos, remember, that we taught about that a while ago in Acts, uh, who had met Paul and, and Priscilla and Aquila were teaching, training him up. Uh, I believe that he was the author of Hebrews, but here's what he writes, or here's what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 6.4, or starting at 6.4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Okay, and then it goes on to explain how you're like a barren field, you're like a, a bush of thistles. Um, 
That seems pretty pointed to say if you have fallen away. Well, there's a couple things I want to point out. Number one, fallen away. What's that term fallen away mean? I talked about it at the very beginning. In this instance, when you research what that really meant when it was written in, in uh, the Greek language there, it means deviated from the path. Okay? It's not a rejection. It's you've deviated from the path, whether that's one foot or whether that's 10 feet or whether that's you're going the entirely wrong direction. It's a deviation from the path. Now, here's the more important thing to know about that, because if you read that, it seems like you can deviate from the path too far to recover, maybe. Seems to be what the author is telling you. But if you read on, Hebrews 6, 9 through 19, and I'm not going to read the whole thing for, for time's sake, but what he is saying is, he says, Beloved, we are convinced of better things than this concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love which you have shown, towards, uh, shown toward his name. He goes on and on. So essentially he's saying you can stray from the path and some people worry about that. However, our God is better than that. And we have a hope and an expectation that he is a loving God and that his gift is irrevocable. So that's what that scripture says in its entirety. So if you've ever looked at Hebrews 6 and said, but it says that we can't, read the whole thing. Read the whole thing in context and pray about what it says. And it really doesn't say that. The other, the other scripture that people pull out all the time, and you may be thinking of it right now, is from Mark 3 where you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, right? The, the, the unforgivable sin. Anybody remember that one? that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what does blaspheming the Holy Spirit really mean? Does that mean stubbing your toe and going, oh, is that, was that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Is it in a fit of anger or a fit of hurt, turning to God and saying, why do you allow this? I hate you, God. Is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Is it having questions? Is it questioning whether God is good, whether God is there, whether he cares, whether he has anything to do with you? Why does he allow these things to happen? Is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? The answer is no, it's not. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit in that context, what it means is a willful pattern of rejecting the gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given you. It's not a matter of a one day or one moment. It's a pattern. What it means is that you have been given a gift and you have said, I don't want this. And you reject it. And you reject it violently and you reject it adamantly. It's not as if you receive, I used the illustration last night talking to someone, you're given a gift, okay? Christmas gift, anything. You're given a gift and you say, thank you for this gift. I'm gonna put it on the shelf right here and ignore it because I don't know what it means to me. I don't know why I would want it. I'm not sure I even want it. I'm just going to put it on that shelf and ignore it, okay? A lot of people do that with their gift of Christ, okay? Blaspheming would be taking that gift and throwing it back at them, saying, I don't want anything to do with this. Get it away from me. I don't want it. What you're doing is you're willfully rejecting that, and here's what I would ask you. When you receive the Holy Spirit at the time that you give your heart to Christ, okay, it says you, you start growing in those fruits of the Spirit. What are the fruits of the Spirit? 
peace, love, patience, joy, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We go on. Those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if you receive those through the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you, is it even possible at that point to reject it? That's what I would ask you. So I would, I would question those people who, who actually do go down that path of violently rejecting the gift of God. Did they ever receive it to begin with? Okay, that's a theological question that's between you and God. You can pray about that. But the way I see it, I don't know how you could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and then reject it. I don't know how that's possible. So those are the two scriptures that talk about that. But here's what I want you to know. Once you've given yourself through the grace of God to Jesus Christ, that's yours to keep and you are his to keep. Okay, listen to this last scripture that I want to leave you with. John 10, 27 to 30. This is Jesus talking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. When it says no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, that means even you. Even you. So, there's so much freedom in Christ. We were under the law, now we have freedom. And with that freedom comes responsibility to seek the Lord's heart on answers to questions like this. Okay, we've given you some things to think about. But more than that, I pray that we have given you something to seek the Lord's heart about. God, how does this apply to me? Okay, that tattoo I want to get, that tattoo I got when I was a kid, maybe I didn't have the right mind when I got that one. But since I've thought differently about it, however these things apply to you, we can't possibly cover all this, but the Holy Spirit can speak to your heart. And so as we go, worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. I want to leave you just with that very last Scripture, Galatians 3, 23, 23 to 25. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was your guardian until Christ came that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That guardian is the law, and now it is incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus Christ to seek his heart, to answers to questions like this. Not to judge one another, but to seek that heart for ourselves. Amen? Amen. So, church, as we go into um, communion, if you're new here, let me explain how we do communion. At the crosses, we have communion there. We have juice, and then we have uh, bread and gluten-free crackers. And you dip the bread or the cracker in the juice. You can serve yourself, serve your family. Up front here where Gabe is, we've got wine there, and then, again, the bread and the crackers. And we would love to serve you up there if you would like to partake in the wine there. But let's do this, not only as Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, but let's do this with glad hearts and joyful hearts that we are no longer under a law that would condemn us. We are under the freedom of Jesus Christ, which in many ways is, is more difficult. Because now it's our responsibility to seek the Lord on these questions and on these issues. And so I'm going to pray over you right now, and my prayer is going to be just that, that we would seek our hearts, uh, seek the Lord's heart 
for those sorts of things. And then when we're finished with that, you can move around and uh, partake in communion. So Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you speak to us individually where we are. We are no longer under that law, but we are under the fulfillment of the law through your Son, Jesus Christ, which, which gives us not only freedom, but responsibility. And so, Lord, I pray that you just flood into each one of our hearts as we sit here now and we seek your word. Show us those places where maybe we've seen things wrong. Show us those places where maybe there is life, where we thought there was death, where we felt condemned over something. Show us maybe where there's life in it. And if there's something we're doing mistakenly, believing there's life and there's not, show us that too. Father, we want your life the life offered to us through your son, Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We pray for that. And we ask that you speak to us. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done and all that you will continue to do through us. Lord, we are so thankful every day. We pray this in the only name that matters, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, George.
and all God's people said, Hallelujah. That's how the youth worshiped right there. Well, that's like a rock concert. 